I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Baines. Hi everyone, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at the ScammerCast, and welcome back. And this is Art Mange, your co-host on thescammercast.com, and we are thrilled to have with us today Professor Keith Gamble, Professor of Finance from DePaul University. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Sponsored by Midwest Trust and Western Union. Here at the ScammerCast, we strive to bring the most up-to-date and best information about scams and fraud, uh, ranging from cybersecurity to social engineering, home repair fraud to the IRS scam that's currently making its rounds and it continues to grow. And I think today's episode will provide another important piece into our understanding as to how people fall victim to scams and fraud. You know, it's really true, Kurt, because the aging of the population is a well-established phenomenon now. We know that as the baby boomers are getting older, there's this huge age wave. I've heard it called the graying of America, and it's really happening all over the world. And so uh, Professor Gamble is going to talk to us today about what the research that he is doing is uncovering about cognitive impairment and loss of decision-making ability and how that's going to affect people as they age. So tell us a little bit more, Keith, about how you got into this field and your background. Sure. Uh, I've always been interested in financial decision-making. I studied it at Harvard when I was an undergraduate there. Uh, I got interested in the behavioral angle while there. Uh, That is how psychology affects people's financial decision-making. So I'm fascinated by what optimal financial decision-making looks like and how that relates to how people actually make financial decisions and the problems that enter uh, in their financial decision-making. My interest in the scam research actually stems from my relationships in Chicago with Rush University Medical Center, which has a, a great group there who studies aging and the problems that that come along with aging and what can be done about them medically to help uh, an elderly population. They have a fantastic data set that they collect there called the Memory and Aging Project. And I saw opportunity to uh, utilize the data they're collecting to answer some important questions about what causes financial problems for older people. And certainly, Cognitive decline has been a big piece of that research. Now, you were talking earlier that uh, they've been collecting data since 1997. Is that correct? Right. They've been collecting data since 1997 in this memory and aging project, and and they have uh, over a 1,000 individuals from the Chicago area who have participated in this project who come in yearly for extensive testing which they use for a variety of purposes, all with the purpose of helping 
uh, better understand the issues that are faced by older Americans. How do people qualify to be a part of the project? I mean, is it a certain age threshold? Right, there's an age threshold to, to be in. Uh, you have to be, I believe it's 60 or above. People voluntarily enter into the project, and it's an extensive commitment to be in the project. It involves a lifetime commitment of yearly testing uh, and anatomical gifts that are actually made for testing post uh, passing away. Uh, so it's, it's an extensive project, but the uh, benefits for the participants are that they get free medical care as right. part of being in this project on a yearly basis from some of the best experts in the areas. Uh, they have regular appointments with and establish relationships with through their participation in the program. Right. Tell us a little bit more about how you, uh, number one, found out about the aging project and then how you connected with the people there and that has led to your research and your papers that we're going to talk about today. So I actually connected to them and found out about them from a, a pure luck. So my mother had come to visit and was flying home and happened to sit on a plane with Patricia Boyle, who's one of my co-authors right, from Rush. Right. And she was working on one of her research papers. And my mother said, oh, that looks interesting. That looks so like something that my son does and <laughs> describes what my, wor my work was about. And what I was interested in at DePaul, she struck up a conversation with Patricia that led to her contacting me and saying, we are doing this at Rush. Would you be interested uh, in connecting with us? And I was very interested in what they were doing. And very quickly, we established a good re relationship and found opportunities for us both and better understanding what's happening with the financial decision-making of people who are facing problems that that older americans are facing these days yeah. so mom was the matchmaker yeah hey. she was the matchmaker yeah. the <laughs> academic matchmaker i love it thank you mom out there <laughs> so how many studies have you participated in now as a result of this collaboration so we've done two uh research studies as a result of this collaboration and have plans for a lot more uh in the future one of those studies is, is now published in Management Science, and another uh, is a working paper, which you can find on my, my website. Okay, and we will post links uh, at the show notes at scammercast.com to all of these studies because they are such important studies that people ought to take the time to really read and, and uh, understand. They're definitely worth reading. I was, was very impressed with the research when I was reading them in preparation for this episode. Walk our listeners through a little bit about that, that first study that uh, you mentioned that's in management science. Tell sure. our listeners a bit about that. All right. So this, this study is called Aging and Financial Decision-Making. And the focus here was on cognitive decline and how cognitive decline affects financial decision-making. Uh, so, so we found that as people experience cognitive decline at older ages, there is a real decrease in their financial ability, and we see that as measured by their both their financial numeracy, their ability to use to use numbers and make financial decisions, and their financial knowledge, sort of rote understanding of facts about how finance industry works and how finance decisions are, are made. We learned that 
Well, it's very sensitive for doctors to talk to older people about their money. That's yeah, a very sen sensitive topic, but it's an important topic for doctors and the caregivers of older Americans. What we learned is that you can ask questions about cognition, about your memory, about your understanding of numbers, and you can learn something about one's financial in ability indirectly through those uh, types of questions. So the right. cognitive decline uh, as seen in, in loss of memory, loss of uh, fluency with numbers, these will show up as lower ability to make financial decisions. So that's what you think of when you think of cognitive decline. It's, it's lack of fluency with numbers, the inability to maybe figure things in your head, that kind of stuff? Exactly. Okay. There's there's uh, multiple components of cognition, and and one thing that uh, Rush University uh, Medical Group and the Memory Aging Project has done an amazing job with is very extensive cognitive testing, and so they look at several different areas of cognition, you know, not just memory, uh, but things like visual visual spatial ability. And how would you define that for our listeners? Visual spatial ability. Right. So there's many different components of. Uh, cognition, and we specifically targeted at both episodic memory and visual spatial ability is associated with declines in numeracy. So episodic memory is just people's ability to remember things that happened to them, ex right. experiences. Okay. Got it. Uh, and visual spatial ability, their ability to uh, understand shapes and relationships among objects. When right. these start to decline, we see declines in, in financial numeracy, ability to, to use numbers to make financial decisions. Okay. Uh, another component of cognition that we, we targeted was semantic memory. And semantic memory is recall of facts and kind of rote learning. It's not necessarily something that you experience like episodic memory, but semantic memory refers to things you might have learned out of a textbook. When okay. that starts declining, we see declines in people's financial knowledge. So yeah. their understanding of how fi financial industry works, how financial products work. All right. So there are indirect ways of better understanding about people's financial decision-making ability uh, that they're much more comfortable talking about with doctors and caregivers than directly talking about the sensitive topic or emotional topic of money. Yeah, yeah. and there is so many emotions wrapped around money, aren't there? Right. Absolutely. I know that I see it on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm working with my fam families and clients and art. I'm sure you oh, see it too absolutely. in the counseling world. Everything uh, comes back to basically fear and control. Right. <laughs> I mean, I hate to put it that way, yeah. but it comes yeah, back to fear and control. Down, it's true. Yeah. So from your perspective then, Keith, what did you find these decreases in cognition led to from a behavioral standpoint? Sure. So the, the behavioral standpoint comes in, 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 in this is we ask people, do you understand that your cognition has declined? And people in the study recognize when their cognition has declined. And we asked them, well, how about your financial decision-making ability? And what we've observed is that even if that's declining, people are reluctant to admit that. And this brings in the psychology of overconfidence. Yeah. So my ability is not that good, but I think it's good or I want to think it's good. So I'm going to say my financial decision-making ability is actually just fine. Uh, and that shows up as, as overconfidence. And this leads to 
big problems in financial decisions. You know, Art just mentioned you know the fear and control. Uh, do you have any thoughts as to why people, particularly in the financial arena, will project that overconfidence where they may they may agree with you that I'm losing some abilities, but. Mm-hmm. By golly, I know how to make financial decisions. Right, and I think the control is the the central piece there of people don't want to lose control of their money. And so they're very reluctant to hand that over, to hand over that control to someone. And this, there's an analogy between my research that I've done and research done prior with uh, older Americans on driving. Older Americans can recognize when they're their sight is declining. They recognize when their reaction time is declining. But when you ask them about how they're doing driving, the answer is just fine, <laughs> thank you. It's not that it's affecting their driving. I think yeah. it's it's a control piece. They right. they don't want somebody taking the keys right. away from them. They want to maintain that control and freedom. That's, that's it, freedom. I really exactly. think that's it. They want to maintain that freedom. And I think there's an analogy with financial decision-making. They recognize their abilities are declining, but they don't want to lose that control and freedom that managing their own money uh, provides. And one of the things that we have tried to get across to our listeners here on the ScammerCast and also in our presentations is it's a question of who's going to control your money. We want you, perhaps in concert with your family or trusted advisors, to keep control of your money. What we don't want is for the scammers to control you and your money through their emotional manipulations. Absolutely. And people are very suspect to this who are experiencing cognitive declines. The other problems that that come with the cognitive declines are things like lower self-confidence in general. And these are aspects that scammers prey on. So, and maybe the flip side of that is, do you find that the more overconfident a person is, the more susceptible they are to scam and fraud? Absolutely. So that's in the uh, second study. Uh, It's a working paper now, Causes and Consequences of Financial Fraud Among Older Americans. And that's something we exactly find, that people experiencing cognitive decline are much more susceptible to scams. And we see that through a scam susceptibility measure that we, we capture in the data. We ask questions like, do you have trouble ending a phone call? As people experience cognitive decline, they have more trouble ending yeah. a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they have, if people experience cognitive decline, they're much more likely to answer a phone call from somebody they don't know. And this may simply be the loneliness that comes from right. that, that life situation sure. of experiencing these changes in your uh, cognitive ability. And these are open doors for scammers, and they're very good at using those open doors. And we want to remind our listeners to please take a moment to have a listen to our other episode on the ScammerCast called The Five Flags, the Emotional Levers of uh, Scam Victimization, where we look at those major emotional triggers, things like fear and loneliness and anger and all all the other ones that are associated with scam susceptibility. So So a lot of dovetail here. We found in the the research the increase in scam susceptibility. We also found directly that cognitive decline makes you much more likely to actually experience fraud. As part of the data set, we asked people, have you experienced fraudulent activity? And of the around 900 people that we looked at in the study, 10% of them had experienced 
uh, financial fraud. And cognitive decline is one of the risk factors of making it more likely for you to be susceptible and actually end up getting scammed. One of the risk factors that I've observed in people that I've consulted with over the years is uh, an ability or a tolerance perhaps for greater risk taking. Do you see any correlation between cognitive decline or cognitive impairment and an exaggerated sense of taking risks? That's a very interesting question. I don't think we've directly looked at that. I can speak to one consequence of fraud that we looked at that's on this risk-taking hypothesis because there's some psychological research that's been done when people uh, have losses that there's this greater inclination to try to recover from their loss mm. and are much more likely to take a risk to try to recover uh, from their loss. And so we looked at that in the people that experience fraud in this. We also, in the data we collect, we asked them about their risk-taking propensity. We found that the year after someone had experienced fraud, they were much more inclined to take a particular risk that we asked them about, which on the surface, this risk sounds wonderful. It's would you take a 50-50 chance of either doubling your annual income or possibly losing the 10, 10% of your income. Right. On the surface, this looks great because 50% chance of doubling my annual income, mm -hmm. that's amazing. The cost sure. is just 50% chance of losing 10%. That's bad, but right. hey, that sounds like a great gamble. So the ones who experience fraud are now twice as likely to accept this gamble as they were before. Right, interesting. The problem with this gamble <laughs> is that's a completely unrealistic yeah. proposition to face. Right. And this is exactly the kind of proposition that scammers will try to lose. Yeah, there's some risk here, but the risk is really limited. Yeah. But yeah. the reward is huge. Play up and the reward. Exactly. And what's really scary is we find that those that have already experienced fraud are much more inclined to go for this now. And I think it comes from that psychology of, I know I just had a loss. I really want to get that I back. I got to get it back right and now. And I'm willing to take this risk because right. I think I can get it back, even though... I look at this risk and say, yes, if that's true, it looks great. Yeah. But that's not a realistic <laughs> that's not a realistic proposition. That's yeah. the kind of risk that someone who's trying to scram you is going to put out there. Yeah. So but people that have experienced fraud, we find are much more inclined to re-experience another fraud with this increased risk taking. This increased uh, I want I know I was frauded. I want to get that back. And the there it is in that reloading phenomenon exactly. that we see in the scam world. You know, the scammers sell the victim's information to their buddies, and then somebody will come along and say, hey, we're going to help you get your money back, and bam, they get scammed again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you know, the house always wins, and it just so happens <laughs> right. that in this scenario, the scammers are the house, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, right. That's an interesting observation that I think family caregivers and professionals in the field really need to be aware of. You know, I work with clients and Art does as well that have been victims of scams and fraud and the family comes in and normally the, the emotions are running high, they're scrambling, they want to help. What they really need to be focused on is not only helping right now, but also how do we prevent this from occurring again because They've mom been ripped off right because mom or dad have been ripped off already and now they're more likely to take that bait to try to make it back right exactly yeah 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think it may pick up on some of the thinking around escalation of commitment. Mm-hmm. How you've got so much money invested in this thing. I mean, I saw this with Bill, my stepfather. He had so much money invested in it that he thought, I have to keep going to get right. my money back. Yes, exactly. I think the escalation of commitment is a component. Uh, scammers also might ha- know how to use the foot in the door mm-hmm. uh, effect, which is if I can get you to commit a little bit, right. then uh, you're much more right. likely to commit right. a lot the next time. That's right. right. So that's right. I'll try with something that seems relatively safe, and then once the door is open, yeah. then I'll really take advantage yeah. of you in a big way. And I can see that with the fake check phenomenon, too. Well, they're giving me this check for $1,500, so they must be real. So now they come and they want $10,000. Well, all right. Yeah. Right. Just haven't had time for the check to be discovered as a fraud or a phony. Absolutely. So, yeah, I exactly. Can see that. Whereas if someone comes in with a $10,000 check initially, that might raise more yeah. red yeah. flags yeah. if sure. they start small and then increase it once they've developed that connection. Right, right. Now, cognitive decline, you know, we, we've talked about that a lot so far, and obviously there are a lot of medical phenomena that lead to it, Alzheimer's, dementia, those kinds of things. We are not talking about some kind of personality defect, you know. These are not stupid people is what I'm Absolutely. trying to get at, right? Yeah, there, it's not a personality defect. It's not and stupid people at all. Cognitive decline is something that can happen to anyone yeah. for any cognitive ability level. It strikes those with high cognitive ability and those with low, low cognitive ability. It strikes people that are otherwise healthy. It, it strikes people that have other health problems. Uh, predicting cognitive decline, I think, is one of the big unanswered questions yeah. that research is trying to get a better hold of. Of can we anticipate long in advance who is going to experience cognitive decline in the future? If we could do that, they could do a lot more to prepare themselves and uh, protect themselves when they have their full cognitive capability yeah. than what I think actually happens to people is they experience the cognitive decline they might start to notice it a little bit. Others around them might start to notice a little bit, but they're really not going to do anything about it until it's too late. And the problems are already there. And so is the differentiation then between cognitive decline and cognitive impairment really one of degree? So when you say cognitive impairment, do you refer to like Alzheimer's? Something like that where where there's – some sort of diagnosed problem. I mean, it may not be full-blown Alzheimer's or Lewy body or whatever. Right. But it, but there's – I'm trying to tease out, is this on a spectrum? Do we start with cognitive decline, then we advance into cognitive impairment, and then go into the scary Alzheimer's stuff? Or right. Is that a way to think of it, or is that wrong? Right. That, that, that's, that's the progression. So it starts with cognitive decline and then can progress. It is very unpredictable pattern. So some – slight cognitive decline is just normal with Mm -hmm. aging and happens a lot to people. The actual cognitive impairment can strike very suddenly where the way I've heard it described is if you look at cognitive data over time, Mm -hmm. if they get major cognitive impairment, it's like their cognition fell off a cliff. It's very abrupt. Okay. Uh, So these changes can happen very suddenly 
uh, that lead to diagnosed dementia, Alzheimer's yeah, disease, yeah. those kinds of problems. Uh, some subtle cognitive decline is just part of normal aging. That causes some problems, and that's what I'm, I'm mentioning in my study about. I think it's important to mention in the, the results that I'm talking about in my study is that no one is included who has Alzheimer's or mm -hmm. documented dementia because we have to rely on their recall to get accurate measures of fraud. Okay. And there are a lot of people that have diagnosed dementia that report fraud. Right. Our concern as researchers is, was this real fraud or is this a symptomatic of their dementia? Mm -hmm. We can't distinguish that with our data. So the data that I'm discussing is talking about mild cognitive decline that's not diagnosed problems sure. with, with memory. Yeah. And so these issues about overconfidence, these are issues that face people that can reasonably say, I don't have a cognitive problem because it's just mild. Mm -hmm. But these are showing up in our research as real problems for financial decisions. So is there a conclusion th that we can draw from this article that you're talking about and the study that goes with it? It's important for elderly people themselves to recognize that they will likely recognize their loss in memory, their loss in sort of numerical sharpness. They'll recognize that it's important for them to realize that these are associated with real declines in financial decision-making ability that they may not see or want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if they start to notice problems with their memory, problems with dealing with numbers, these are signs that you want to find help. You want to find trusted help from, from extended family, from professionals, financial planners, legal advice to help prepare for what potentially could be down the road uh, for you and related yeah. to your cognition. It, it kind of brings me back to our third R of scam prevention, too, which is reach out. We, we talk about it as reach out to check it out, and that would play right into this. Reach out to check out whether something that you're hearing on the phone or in an email is legit or not with a trusted advisor, like you say. Absolutely. And I think that's a very important part of protecting oneself from from scams. One of the hypotheses I had going into this study was that maybe having a family member or a financial planner being part of the financial decision-making of someone experiencing cognitive decline protects them from experiencing fraud. But that's actually not what we found with the data. And then mm -hmm. looking more closely into the data, what we saw was that in many cases, the family member that they've asked to help with their financial decisions is the source of the fraud yeah, or so the sad. financial yeah. planner that they think they, tr they trust, they think is trustworthy, really isn't licensed mm -hmm. and is a source of their fraud. So when you get help, it's very important that you reach out and check it out, mm -hmm. that you verify that this financial planner is certified and doesn't have uh, complaints against them. And there are resources like the FINRA broker check that uh, individuals can go to to find out, can I trust this individual with my money? And they may also want to check with their state attorney general's office and just see if there have been any complaints filed right. against them and, right. and those sorts of things. Securities at Exchange Commission, perhaps. That kind of information sometimes can be a challenge to get to. It uh, can. Yes, There's you know. not a centralized source yeah. that I know of. There's lots of different areas that collect 
information about fraudulent activity, I think there needs to be more coordination among them, and this needs to be more easily accessible uh, to people who are trying to find out who they can trust with their money. Now, you found, too, through your research we were talking before we started to record today, that there is an increased likelihood that people that are starting to experience cognition decreases will reach out for help. Mm-hmm. But there's a significant number of people that will not. What, yeah, exactly. what, what have you found there? Well, we were, we were encouraged that a lot who do need help are getting help. That if you're experiencing cognitive decline, you're much more likely to have help with your financial decisions than those who, and this happens, some older people, even much older people, 90s, 100 and past, don't show any cognitive decline. Right. It, it, cognitive decline is not inevitable uh, with age. It's, it's the highly few. Un, right. It's highly un, unpredictable. People that experience cognitive decline are are much more likely to ask for help. But you're right. We did find that a significant portion of them are still not getting the help that they clearly need. And I think this is a hard problem to solve because they've experienced the cognitive decline. It can't just put it on them mm-hmm. to get yeah, the help. That's right, the problem is right, cognition. Right. Uh, so this is where loved ones can play a major role in trying to encourage mm-hmm. sharing and getting yeah, help. Yeah. Right. And I think it's also important for professionals in the field, those of us that work with families and uh, older adults, to uh, suggest be be a be a guide, not uh, not just be there for the transaction, but to be a guide to help people down that road. Because you know, it's kind of like when your parents used to tell you, you know, eat your veggies because they're good for you, right? You, yeah, right, mom, yeah, right, dad. But sure. when your best friend says, you know, you should eat your veggies because they're good for you, yeah, you're right. Okay, I get right. it. Exactly. it. Sometimes it takes a person or a professional that's not part of that family unit, right, to, right. to get that message across. I agree, and yeah. I think what you're encouraging is is more social openness about this. And I yeah. think that would be very, very helpful. Uh, my sense is that people aren't comfortable talking about their money and certainly not any problems that are related to their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that if that was more discussed, uh, that would lead to better care. All right. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that, that to me sums it up. Uh, you know, I, I work with families in estate planning, and I'm always encouraging clients to talk to their family about their decisions. And nine out of 10 absolutely will not. Right. Not and even I, talk to their, their children right. about think, their decisions. Exactly. And the problem is people don't really think they need to do it until it's too late. Right. And there are already problems with that. Yeah. And I work with a fair number of senior women, and there's been a kind of a wave of senior women coming into my practice lately who are grieving uh, a recent loss of their husbands. And that is such a vulnerable time for them because many of them will do retail therapy to feel better, but they're also much more vulnerable to the predatory family member or the financial advisor who sees a pot of money there from an insurance settlement or perhaps from an inherited uh, 401k or retirement account. And right. and they're just so susceptible exactly. to being ripped off. Exactly. And I know in a lots of families, there's one member of the household who's really in charge of the money and managing the money. And if that member passes away, not only do you have the emotional loss, but you now have a major 
practical burden of managing something that you're not familiar sure. with or comfortable doing. And I think this provides a major problem and a uh, opportunity for someone who's looking for a, to commit a scam, commit a fraud. Right. So, so I'm interested. I want, I want to uh, switch gears just for a minute, mm-hmm. and then we're obviously going to dig right back in. But yeah, you're involved in education, in right? Teaching teaching students about finance and economics, right? Exactly. So, why do you think there is such a perhaps a low level of financial literacy? Looking at the big picture amongst people. That's a big question. And there's <laughs> lots of components of that, and there's lots of different schools of thought on that. I mean. A common response you hear is just, well, money's not taught enough in school. And I do think that financial education needs to be part of mainstream education. There's also, I think, a lot of psychology with money and a lot of emotions that are involved in money that people aren't comfortable talking about and that this leads them to shy away from really diving into more understanding of how financial decisions work and how they should work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, getting through that emotional barrier, I think, would help a lot of people. Uh, sadly, I think people don't often do that until they've they've been burned. They realize too late that they don't have enough save for retirement, mm-hmm. or they realize you know too late that their their money has been lost. Uh, from high fees, things like that. Do they start to look at, well, what are the fees that I'm paying for Mm -hmm. this financial service? So people need to do that early. They need to to educate themselves in advance. And I think in our country, a lot of that responsibility is just left to the individual to take the initiative and do themselves. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So we we have to, not to sound overly psychology or pop psychology, but we, we really have to master ourselves in order to really deal effectively with money and exactly. financial Absolutely. issues. And I think it's it's helpful to recognize that it can be really painful. It can be really hurt to think a lot about money and think about planning for retirement, for instance. But recognizing that a little bit of your time and effort can go a long way to helping your security for the long run. Uh, that's great advice. Great advice. And we're visiting with Professor Keith Gamble from DePaul University in Chicago. And at this point, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back here at ScammerCast.com. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at ScammerCast.com, and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. 
Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The discipline to grow. The strength of experience. The ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days are different. Today, scammers impersonate their victims' loved ones and make up an urgent situation. I've been arrested. I've been mugged. I'm in the hospital. And plead for money to resolve it. At Western Union, we want to help. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person. And always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union. Move money for better. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear. The adrenaline. The unknown. Law enforcement training for the arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints. Ballistics. DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States Military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LITAConference.com. That's L-E-T-A Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you behind the thin blue line. LITAConference.com. L-E-T-A Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back, everyone, to the ScammerCast. And we are talking today with Professor Keith Gamble from DePaul University about cognitive decline and scam susceptibility. And so we were talking on the break, Keith, a little bit about the measures and how we determine scam susceptibility. Could you say a little bit more about that for our listeners? Sure. We use uh, six questions in our, our measure of scam susceptibility. I think there is basis for these questions, but this is an area that the research really could be improved, uh, better understanding how to capture scam susceptibility. So first question is, I answer the phone whenever it rings, even if I do not know who is calling. 
That's a great question. Yeah, we've said time and time again, uh, particularly with the advent of caller ID, even though we know uh, Mark Goodman has told me that caller ID can be spoofed, right? Yeah, you, you can't can fake the phone ID. number. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, if you don't recognize the phone number, don't pick up the phone. What, right. what kind of responses did you find th- to that I question? I think that partly what this is capturing is people's loneliness. And as people experience cognitive decline, they're much more inclined to be lonely. And so if someone's calling, if someone's reaching out to them, it's a human that they can connect with. They're much more likely mm-hmm. uh, to answer the phone, even if they don't know uh, who, who is calling. And then the second question relates to this. So you're already on the phone. I have difficulty ending a phone call, even if a caller is a telemarketer, someone I do not know or someone I do not wish to call me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's a lot of what we talk about in presentations in the psychological world. It's called boundaries. Right. It's the ability to say no yeah. uh, effectively. Exactly. Keith, uh, we have oftentimes heard that particularly the baby boom generation and the generation preceding it, I guess the the greatest generation, whatever kind of label you want to put on it, they were raised to be polite. They were raised to be friendly. They were raised not to be rude. Oftentimes we've called them the gentleman or gentlewoman's generation. What do you find in your research, particularly as it relates to this kind of question? We don't have data on that, so I can't really say it from a research perspective, but I do have experience just in my life what you're talking about from that generation. Uh, And I think it's important that they be willing to have boundaries. If they're not comfortable talking to someone, it is perfectly reasonable to say – to end the phone conversation, to thank you, but I'm going to go now. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the next question? Uh, the next that you guys question, have? if something sounds too good to be true, hmm. it usually is. Why is that so hard to follow? <laughs> right. I, you know, I wonder if it's about the hope. It's yeah. like maybe this time it'll really be true. It's my lucky day. Exactly. I think there's a component of scams that people really want what the scammer is saying to be true. Yeah. Yeah. I really think they do. Who wouldn't love an extra $5 million from the foreign lottery or <laughs> Absolutely. whatever it is, you know, your true love to find you online exactly. or something like that? And anytime uh, you hear high reward with low risk, yeah. this is something to be aware of. Red light because on your dashboard. Exactly. That mm. That is uh, usually something that's fraudulent or there's a risk that's not well understood or not yeah. being described to Does you. Does that connect to the overconfidence bias, you think, Keith, that – that misplaced hope of maybe this time it'll be true. Is it? Does there a connection you think between that and that overconfidence dynamic? I, th- I think there is a, a connection there. That there's a, a part of overconfidence as wanting to believe something that's just not reality. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in in your thoughts on this because you teach finance and and economics. I, do we see this in the behavior of stock market investors, right, or the the pitches of guaranteed return with no downside? side, those kinds of things. Exactly. I think we do see that in the psychology of investors. We often see that when the stock market has had a good run, people start to believe that because of that good run that there's not risk. Yeah. Uh, I know this happened in the internet bubble when there was a lot of returns, companies, mm-hmm. sky price, stock prices skyrocketing, and people felt like a fool to not have their money in the market. Uh, right. And a lot of put a lot of people put their money in the market, thinking that this was high return with low risk. 
But when we get to that psychology with investors that they're perceiving high return with low risk, I think this is exactly the point where the Warren Buffetts of the world realize it's it's time to be out. Right. Well, that's right. Yeah. So the smart money is out, and the, and the uh, the other folks are now feeding into the top of the bubble, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they're the one the the ones who'll get burned yeah. the worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and folks, too, I want our listeners to understand that we're not making moral judgments here. We're not saying right. people are stupid. This is this is natural human reaction and behavior, whether it's in a scam situation or in an investment situation, which right. most of us would say is a smart thing to do if we have our money in the stock market for retirement, right? Exactly. It, we're all human, and there are wonderful things yeah. about being human, and there are also uh, mistakes that people people make, and that's a big part of, of my research has always been this behavioral bent of where how does the humanness of our decision where does that come in yeah. how does that affect us all right what's the next question the next question is persons over the age of 65 are often targeted by con artists is that a yes or no kind of question yeah so that is factually true okay yes. and if the question because this is a data set of elderly people the the average age in our data set uh, for the Memoring Aging Project is in the, the low 80s, mm-hmm. right. uh, is do they recognize that their demographic is a target for scammers? And what do you find there? Do, do people recognize that? People do. Some recognize that. The real acceptability comes to those who don't recognize that. Right. But there's a lot that do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. And I also saw, too, I think uh, somewhere in, in the study that the average length of schooling for the participants is 15 years, right? right. So we're, we're talking people with some college education. Exactly. The, these are, are very smart, educated, successful people that in retirement have uh, gifted their retirement years to Rush University right. to say, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with you yearly to go through this extensive testing so that you can better understand what life is like for older in Americans and how to improve that that life. Uh, but that's important that that these individuals are very productive, well-off people in society that are experiencing these things. Okay. And so to relate it back to the specific question, people of that age need to understand that they are a target. Absolutely. And if they understand they are a target, they're less susceptible to scam. Great. So do you think then that that means education efforts are worthwhile? Is it important to have repeated education efforts to really hammer home these ideas and and facts? I think that that's important. I think better understanding of better collection of fraud data would really help there. I think there's a lot of underreporting of fraud that's out there. I agree. And that if someone is scammed, they may not want to tell anyone what's happened out of embarrassment. Very common. So we don't actually pick up the scam that's occurring. I think one thing that's nice about the data that that we're collecting for our research study studies through this memory and aging project is we're not just going and asking specifically about money. This is actually a very small component of the extensive testing that these individuals are in, and there's a real strong relationship between the individuals in the study and Rush University Medical Center so that we can get comfortable responses from them. They're comfortable uh, with this process, with the research. They're comfortable to say, yes, I have experienced fraud. This is what's happened to me. 
Right. Yeah, that's one of our missions here at the ScammerCast is to decrease the stigma and shame about reporting these things because then if you report them, you can become a part of the solution. Exactly. And I think I know there's some limited national statistics on fraud, and to me they're very scary of 10% of our populations experience fraud, and the elderly population, this is much higher. And this is just reported fraud. So if someone's been through fraud themselves, they shouldn't feel like it's just them or just their mistake, that this is a very widespread problem. Yeah, you know, it's just the the, the tip of the iceberg analogy, right? There's so much Mm -hmm. underwater that goes unreported that we don't know about. I mean, we've heard statistics on the order of only one in about 44 instances actually gets reported. Absolutely. And I know just anecdotally, when I talk about the research that I do with people, almost invariably I hear their own personal story about their great uncle or grandmother who experienced fraud and how it happened, Mm -hmm. that it's very widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of stories, far too many. Yes, indeed. I think we've covered four of the questions on the scam susceptibility uh, survey. So what's next? Question five is, if a telemarketer calls me, I usually listen to what they have to say. Mm. Okay, so again, that's a, that's a, a, another a component of not s- maybe setting the boundary or or uh, hanging up right away. Right? Absolutely, yeah. and it opens the target up to the social engineering tactics that we've covered in our other episode with Chris Hadnagy uh, about how they use psychological manipulation, whether it's the five flags or whatever, to sink their hooks into the person and then drag them down the path toward victimization. Right. So the longer you listen to a telemarketer, the more likely you are to fall into their spell. Exactly. And they have a lot of tricks in their mm-hmm. their bag, and they'll keep trying them until one resonates with you and <laughs> right. they, can, they can dig in. Yeah, they really probe for vulnerabilities. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, and they're, they're they're persistent, and they're not afraid to try a new tactic. You know, exactly. if tactic A isn't working, they'll go to tactic B. Exactly, right. and I think people often think their listening is just being polite. They're just being out of yeah. courtesy, but yeah. they're also leaving the door open to the scammers to to sink their hook in. Yeah, so it isn't polite to let a telemarketer talk. It's actually increasing your risk. Exactly, it's a bad idea. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And what's next? So the final question is, are you listed on the National Do Not Call Registry, Uh, yes or no? And what's the importance there? Uh, The importance there, if you're on the National Do Not Call Registry, it will decrease the amount of telemarketing calls that you get. You know, Keith, I noticed that uh, a lot of the questions revolve around telephone contact. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm wondering if you have done any research or have any thoughts on how seniors are vulnerable when it comes to social media, computers. This is a good uh, good question. We actually have looked into that. We've looked if more social media access makes someone more susceptible. We didn't find that it does. And there may be different reasons for that. I think the, the more social media does provide more opportunity, but there also may be a component of the more social media among this population, the more savvy uh, that they are. So it might also be associated with better protecting themselves from right. scams as well. There's, uh, I think a lot more research needs to be done in that, that area to, to tease out 
what that effect is. Well, I hope that's true, that yeah. the better they are at social media, the more uh, savvy they are about computer and cybersecurity. Well, I'm wondering, too, if it might not be – they're a little more fearful – of the computer and the technology, so they're a little more skeptical and wary as yeah, opposed so. to, you know, pick up the phone, hey, you know, I've, I've had a phone all my life, right? Uh, right, Whereas exactly. they're just now kind of diving into the computers, and so it's a little scary. It's like the first time you go swimming, right? You, yeah. you don't go too far away from shore, but as you get more comfortable with it, you go further mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. and hence you you become further at risk. Exactly, and I think it, it raises a good point. If, if these were the scam susceptibility questions we used at the time, but I think this needs to continue to be evolving uh, of what captures SAM susceptibility, and I think this is a big, still largely not understood question that research needs to continue to address. I think they definitely need to look at uh, email Mm-hmm. as a vulnerability because that's yeah. one of the major ways right that's the phone and email that scammers contact people and right. there are right. multiple levels with email it could be uh, the scam proposal itself or it could be something like here download this file which exactly. puts malware in your computer that sort of thing right yeah. i agree well i i know from my perspective i applaud you guys for taking on such an audacious challenge absolutely i mean i know this has to be a difficult area to do research in but we have to start doing it sometime right exactly i think it's an important question and it's a a question that needs to be answered Uh, i am happy that there is a lot of government initiative to try to better research these types of questions with an aging population. This is now becoming more of a hot topic uh, in academia of what are we going to do? And I think research is really the starting point of that, of answering some questions to provide what to industry, what do we know is happening with these individuals? What might protect them so that then industry can start implementing uh, those protective measures. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. What uh, if you had the magic wand? What what would you like to see in this area, in terms of research and implementation? Well, I think one area we we need a big change on is collection of data uh, in this, and that the research that I'm talking about is stemming from a memory and aging project in Chicago. Uh, it's amazing what delay data they've collected. I applaud them for that. I think there needs to be more of a, na- a national effort to collect data on this. Uh, and it's hard for the reasons that we mentioned that people yeah. are not very open about uh, financial issues and particularly if they've been susceptible to scams. Uh, but from an academic perspective, if you want answers to the questions, you got to have the data. And so we need to start by better collecting data on these on these problems. Do you think that this is a topic that the government should take the lead on, that industry should take the lead on, or or academics? Right. I think we can all we can all participate yeah. in this process. I think government certainly has an interest in people's welfare and can certainly fund science. Uh, and this is an area of science that I think there's a lot of f- f- uh, fruit to bear if money is spent Uh, in these areas. These are also major questions for industry as people age that they are uh, supporting the liabilities of through pension promises, uh, the insurance industry. These are major issues uh, for, I know industry has a lot of interest in trying to better understand these questions. And then 
everyday individuals in our society. I think I'd like to see people be much more open about these problems. I think it would help to help lead to solution if people could talk more about uh, scam experience, cognitive decline, these types of issues uh, with caring for the elderly. I think the the more open we become as a society uh, about that will help lead to some solutions. And so here's a, a call out to our listeners. If you or someone close to you has been the victim of a scam or a fraud, what stopped you or perhaps stopped them from speaking out about it? Was it shame? Was it fear? Was it something else? Leave us a comment at scammercast.com and let us know your stories because what you share might help other people to overcome some of the shame and stigma or whatever it is and further the conversation and make it easier for people to stop these crooks before they get started. That's absolutely true. I couldn't uh, agree more, Art. We have to be more open in sharing our experiences so that we can help identify the problem and then work on the solution to the problem. Right. Because as we were talking before we started recording today, Keith, you know, really when you boil this down at the individual level, we're all living longer. I mean, the medical advances are incredible, and we're all living longer Unfortunately, uh, the retirement funds may not be sufficient to, to fund that that length of life, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful problem to have that <laughs> we're, we're living yeah. living longer. Yeah. Medical advances are remarkable. So people are dying of heart disease far less. That's a wonderful thing. But there are new issues that come with that. Cognitive decline is one that we see uh, a big time. And we just have to, as a society, to work to, to solve these yeah. issues. So anything we can do to help people live their retirement years uh, with the security of knowing that the money they worked hard to earn during their lifetime is going to be enough to last them through the retirement exactly. is a good thing, right? Right. I agree. And that's a, a big issue even without scams it in is. place. Right. But yeah. scams are a yeah. major problem right now that's draining people. And I think as more and more people enter retirement with uh, a pool of money, an account like a 401k account, an IRA account, that they manage the whole pool themselves. This provides a big opportunity for scammers to come in and co- and commit very big scams, You know, as opposed to if the old system of people getting pension checks, a scammer can come in and try to take you know, you, this month's pension check from you, but at least you have the security of that next check is always right. going to come mm-hmm. in. But as we've changed to this system of people managing their own pools of money in retirement, scam problem is, is even bigger. Yeah, you know, there have been multiple stories in the media about people losing their retirement money. We just had one here that we've mentioned mm-hmm. several times in the St. Louis area where a lady lost $250,000 to the grandparent scam, which was virtually her entire retirement savings. Exactly. And I know uh, the Certified Financial Planners Association has surveyed their members and found that many of these certified financial planners have worked with people experiencing fraud, and the average fraud size is $50,000, which is a significant chunk of one's retirement. It sure is. is. It absolutely is. Sure is. My stepfather lost $70,000, and and that's a it was a huge burden on him. And absolutely. It, it seems that one of the messages that you're getting across, Keith, is that caregivers, professionals, family members, whoever, have to understand that decision-making and judgment 
may be vulnerable even though the elder seems fine. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think it's worth emphasizing that the participants in the the stu- the the participants that I do the research on in my uh, research studies are not at all the worse off cognitively. There's mm-hmm. no one in my the data I use who ex- who has dementia or Alzheimer's. Right. Uh, this is what I'm talking about is mild cognitive impairment that is part of uh, normal aging. Uh, so these problems are often not at all noticed by yeah. uh, doctors or family members, but they're real, they're happening. All right. All right, well, we've been visiting today with Professor Keith Gamble from DePaul University. Uh, Keith, where can people learn more about you and see what you're up to? Sure, so I, I have my own personal w- uh, website, I am also on Twitter, and which is new to me. I've, <laughs> I have actually got my first uh, smartphone only two months ago. All right. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the new tools of technology. Uh, you can find more of, uh, about me personally on Twitter. Uh, I'm also available on LinkedIn. Uh, we'll post links to all the ways to connect with Keith, and to learn about his research projects uh, on the show note page at scammercast.com. Keith, uh, is there anything coming that you're working on that you would like to share with our audience? Sure. So coming on this agenda is is largely driven by uh, Rush University Medical Center and specifically the Rush Alzheimer's Disease uh, Research Group there. That's amazing. It has been doing this for years. They uh, are... Uh, seeking new funding from uh, the National Institute of Aging and have some new uh, data resources that they're collecting. But the key to this is getting the uh, funding resources to gather because this memory and aging project is extremely expensive Absolutely. Uh, to do, but I think the potential societal benefits from this, the, the questions that we can answer uh, from this data collection are worth it. Very much so. And uh, no question about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Keith, you, you've talked a lot today about the Rush University Memory and Aging Project. And why don't you just tell our listeners a little more about it, and we'll post links uh, to their information so people can learn more. Sure. So I focused on the financial aspects of this uh, study, but it's really about all aspects of aging, Uh, So they study physical aspects of aging and the physical difficulties that people have as they age. Uh, They study physiological changes that happen inside the mind, inside the brain. They get anatomical gifts from the participants, and they study uh, the brains of the participants after they die. Uh, So there's a huge area of, of research being done there that involves sociologists, epidemiologists, psychologists, a neurologist. It's a, a wonderful group that's collecting really amazing data that can improve people's lives. I uh, want to encourage everybody that's listening to uh, visit our website at scammercast.com and leave us your thoughts, your ideas, your experiences. Have you been a victim of scammers? Somebody reached out to you that you thought was a bit scammy. And if you like the Scammercast, please share it with a friend. Please share it with a colleague or a family member and help us get the message out there about scam prevention. Until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Mange, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And help us also to hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast. 
your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.